Would you take your Bibles and turn to Luke's Gospel? We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 26 to 45 today. Uh, if you weren't here last Sunday, we are beginning a new series in Luke, and these passages are just wonderful leading up to the birth of Christ. So I'd like to read this for us as we begin Luke 1, verses 26 to 45. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. And at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we read these text of scripture that speaks so powerfully of the coming of your son we stand in awe we thank you for luke who recorded these things so that we can hear and understand what was said we stand in amazement at how you did all of this and the entry of your son into our world that came so meek and so lowly father i pray that that wonder and awe would fill our hearts today as we walk through this passage, in Jesus' name, amen. Announcing the birth of a child is exciting. If you are a parent, you know what that's like. And some of you are in that stage where, you know, you're having children and you're excited about what's going to happen. Some of you, it's your firstborn, you know, and you're thrilled with that. It's a joy with every child that comes along, but I think especially when it's the first one, there is a, a new wonder and excitement that goes with that. 
I think back to when we had our firstborn son, Matthew, and we found out that Gail was pregnant, and we were so excited, you know, and a little fearful and wondering how's this going to go as new parents. I can remember calling our parents to tell them the good news, and I also remember my mom's cautious response, you know, when she found out it was still pretty early, don't tell too many people yet in case something would happen. And I think of the joy that came as that pregnancy progressed and Gail would feel this baby within kicking or moving. Or I'd put my hand on her belly and feel that foot kicking or that kind of movement there. Or we'd hear the heartbeat when you go to the doctor's appointment and you'd listen in wonder and amazement at this new life within. There's a joy that comes, and we can relate to this when we read this story of what is happening here. For the second time in six months, God sent the angel Gabriel to announce the birth of a child. And Luke tells this story so beautifully, so simply and yet powerfully it's as though we are standing there we're observers we're listening in on this conversation between Gabriel and Mary we don't know if Luke had the opportunity to talk to Mary if that's where he heard these stories firsthand we think about Mary's age at the time Jesus was born and if Luke wrote in the 50s or did his investigation uh, Mary would only have been mid-60s, maybe 70 years old, so it's quite possible that he could have been talking to her. And I think about him asking the questions, you know, Mary, what was that like? What did the angel say to you? How did that make you feel, and how did you respond? What did you say in return? And Luke is writing these things down so that we might know what God did in those days, and what was about to happen. As we go through this text this morning, I would like us to think about two things. One, I'd like us to think, what does this passage reveal about God? And secondly, what can we learn from Mary's example? I think one of the messages that comes through in this text is that God comes to the humble and lowly. And we see that in this first section. God comes to the humble and lowly. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent Gabriel on another assignment. I love the name Gabriel. Gabriel means God is my hero. And that's, that's kind of neat. Apparently even angels have heroes and Gabriel's hero is God. I was thinking about if you are one of the archangels, who else could it be? Who else is greater than you, than God? And so here he is. He comes as this messenger. And this time Gabriel goes not to Judea, but he goes to Galilee. And he goes to Nazareth, this small, out-of-the-way village, not the capital city of Jerusalem. It's an unusual choice. I mean, Galilee was despised by the Jews living in Judea. Galilee was part of that northern area where those ten tribes had been carried off into captivity in the past, where they had been run over. I mean, Galilee was such a mixture 
of Jews and Gentiles. It was on one of the major crossroads going north into Damascus and up and around into um, both Assyria and Babylon and that area of the Fertile Crescent. And so here was this area where they didn't think much of them. You know, if you were a good Jew, if you were devout, you would be in Judea or Jerusalem. And we think about this town, Nazareth. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It is about halfway between Mount Carmel toward the Mediterranean and Galilee. And you have to kind of go out of the way to get there on that route going across. Remember Nathaniel's question when he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth? He asked the question, can anything good come from there? I mean, really, can anything good come out of Nazareth? His question reflects the contemporary opinion. And Gabriel is to go to a young peasant girl, and her name is Mary. We learn that she is betrothed to a man named Joseph, And he is a descendant of David, Israel's greatest king. And that will be significant in this line of Christ and the announcement that's going to be made. We also know when we think about Gabriel going to this young girl that in that day, betrothals took place when a girl was between 12 and 14 years of age. Imagine that. Mary. Somewhere between the age of 12 and 14, it would be like our middle school students. It was common that a marriage would be arranged at that point. Um, It was stronger than what we would consider an engagement period. Uh, There would be no physical intimacy until after the marriage had taken place, but that betrothal was binding. It could only be broken by death or divorce. Mary was also very likely illiterate, as would be all peasant girls at that time. Her knowledge of the scriptures would come from her parents, from what she heard in the synagogue, and from what she had memorized. And yet we see in Mary this young girl who is so very devout and who thinks deeply about spiritual things. And the angel went to her, We don't know whether it was in her home or out in the field or somewhere that he met her, but he came to her and he says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. What's amazing here is, you know, we don't get a lot of details about Mary's response. We would think that she would have been terrified at seeing this angelic being that has come to her. And maybe he was veiled in some way so that it wouldn't be quite so uh, great a contrast for her. But he comes and he brings to her this greeting. Greetings, you who are highly favored. And she wonders what this means. The word greeting in Latin is the word ave. And you know the song Ave Maria, and that's where it comes from. It comes from the Latin. But the Latin translation in the Latin Vulgate that translated this as Hail Mary, full of grace, was too strong a rendering, and it led to some errors in Catholic theology. Raymond Brown, who is the dean of the 
Catholic New Testament scholars is the one who made that statement. He said that that translation was too strong a rendering. Brown went on to note that the Vulgate's faulty translation gave rise to the medieval idea that Mary had been given every gift, not only spiritual but secular, even above those given to angels. And it gave rise to the idea of Mary being the dispenser of grace, and it resulted in prayers being offered to her. Because of this poor translation. And the ultimate expression of this thinking came on December 8th, 1854 when Pius IX declared the doctrine of Immaculate Conception. Now, if you didn't grow up in a Catholic tradition and you hear the doctrine of Immaculate Conception, you're probably thinking that refers to Jesus' birth, but it does not. It refers to Mary's birth. And it said that from the first moment of her conception, the Blessed Virgin Mary was by the singular grace and privilege of Almighty God And in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of mankind, kept free from the stain of original sin. And so that doctrine taught that Mary was born without sin. And she is the mother of God. And she is the one that people should pray to, to ask for favors from Jesus. All because of a poor translation of the Latin Vulgate. Karl Barth wrote, can any such figure meet with a worse misunderstanding than that which happened to Mary in the Catholic Church? You see, Mary wasn't chosen because she was the most holy woman on the planet at that time. It wasn't a contest to try and find out who was most devout. It wasn't saying that Mary was more holy than Elizabeth, for example. No, Mary was chosen by God's grace to be the one who would give birth to the Son of God. Mary was the most favored woman on the planet. God was giving her an unusual grace and an unusual assignment. And from that time on, she would be called blessed among women. Gabriel goes on to tell her that you will be with child and give birth to a son. He will be a savior, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. He will be great. He'll be called son of the most high. God is going to give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. And I can imagine Mary thinking this through again in her mind. She very likely repeated the words over and over. A son? A savior? Jesus? Son of the Most High? Divine? A king whose kingdom will never end? This is the Messiah. This is the one that we have been waiting for all our lives. And you have chosen me to be the mother of your son? Why did God choose to have his son enter the world in this way? 
Theologians have wrestled with that through the years. We stand in amazement at what God has done. Theodotus of Ankara, who was a martyred saint in the fourth century, gave this answer. He said, the Lord of all comes as a slave amidst poverty. Choosing for his birthplace an unknown village in a remote province, he is born of a poor maiden, and he accepts all that poverty implies. If he had been born to high rank and amidst luxury, unbelievers would have said that the world had been transformed by his wealth. If he had chosen as his birthplace the great city of Rome, they would have thought the transformation had been brought about by civil power. Or suppose he had been the son of an emperor. They would have said how useful it is to be powerful. Or imagine him the son of a senator. It would have been, look, what can be accomplished by legislation. But in fact, what did he do? He chose surroundings that were poor and simple, so that so ordinary as to be almost unnoticed, so that people would know it was the Godhead alone that had changed the world. This was his reason for choosing his mother from among the poor of a very poor country and for becoming poor himself. God comes to the humble and lowly. He came to Mary, a young peasant girl with a humble heart. He came to shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks by night. He came to fishermen who were tending their nets, and he called them to come and follow me. God comes to those who are humble in heart. Secondly, we see that God does what no one else can do, and we see that in verses 34 to 38. Mary asked Gabriel the question, how will this be since I am a virgin? And she doesn't ask this question in disbelief. She just wanted more information. 700 years earlier, Isaiah the prophet had written that the virgin would be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And people wondered what that meant. What does that prophecy mean? Is this going to be a young girl? Is it literally a virgin birth that's going to take place? And when would this happen? And what would be the circumstances? They knew it related to the Messiah, but they wondered at, again, the power and the meaning of these words. And the angel answered that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. God will do it by means of the Holy Spirit. The child will be conceived within you. And when he tells her that the Most High will overshadow you, that word overshadow is the same word that was used in the Old Testament to describe the filling of the tabernacle when the Shekinah glory of God came down and filled that tent with his holy presence. It's the same word that will be used on the Mount of Transfiguration. When that cloud comes down, when Jesus is there with Peter and John and they hear this voice from heaven, God is present. It will be a miracle birth. God will do it, and Mary will know. But this isn't at all like the pagan myths that described God's coming down to have intercourse with human women. It is not at all like that. 
It is a miracle where God, by the Holy Spirit, will conceive this child within her. Mary is given a sign unasked for when the angel tells her that Elizabeth in her old age is also going to give birth to a son. In fact, she who was said to be barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. You know, I think about that. A virgin birth, no problem to God. And that's really, really good news. Because you know what that means? That means a new birth is also no problem to God. For us to be born again by his Holy Spirit and to become spiritually alive is not a problem. A new creation, that's not a problem either. We become a new creation in Christ when we come into a relationship with him. And a new heaven and earth that day when this present earth will be destroyed by fire and God will make all things new, not a problem. Because nothing is impossible with God. And I look at Mary. Mary responds in faith and she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me just as you have said. She is so willing. She is believing. Her faith stands in contrast to Zechariah's doubt. <clears throat> I want to say a word about Mary here. You know, I think that in the Catholic teaching of Mary that they are making too much or they are saying more of her than the Scripture says. But I think sometimes as Protestants, we don't give Mary enough credit for what she has done. The Bible doesn't tell us to pray to Mary, and it doesn't tell us to revere her as the mother of God. God was still on his throne in heaven when Jesus was in her womb. But Mary is an outstanding model of faith and discipleship. I mean, Mary is humble. She hears this news and she's wondering, who am I that God should choose me for this? Mary is reflective. She ponders things deep in her heart. We'll see that again in the story of the birth of Christ when the shepherds come and the wise men come and she hears about the angels and their announcement that was made and it will say that Mary pondered all of these things in her heart. She is not a frivolous young woman. She's devout. She loves God. Mary is believing. She believes that what God has said, he will do. And Mary is submissive. She says, here I am, Lord. I am your servant. And she would willingly accept what God had said, even in spite of the cost. And it would cost her to be the mother of Jesus. And I look at her example and I think, are those qualities true of us? Or when God asks us to do something, we would say, here I am, God. You want me to do this? I'm in. Got it. By your power, I will do what you ask. And to our teenagers, those who are in middle school or high school, I think Mary is an example of faith for you. That you are capable of great things when you set your heart on God and choose to follow him. 
You are not too young to make a difference in our world. And you are not too young to think deeply about spiritual truths. And I would urge you to cultivate these same qualities in your life of humility, reflection, faith, and submission. And thirdly, God brings joy to those who believe in him. And we see that in verses 39 to 45. Mary took the hint from Gabriel. And she got ready and she went to visit her relative Elizabeth. We really don't know if Elizabeth was a cousin or an aunt. We just know she was a relative because the scripture doesn't make it clear what the relationship was. And she got ready and she hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. We don't even know the name of the town where Elizabeth and Zechariah were. But going from Galilee to Judea would be a distance of 80 to 100 miles. So it wasn't a quick trip or a short journey. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, she tells us that the baby leaped for joy in her womb. And Elizabeth herself is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she prophesies, blessed are you among women. And blessed is the child that you will bear. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? How does she know that? I mean, how does she know who this child is going to be? She knows it by revelation from the Holy Spirit. I want to make two observations here on this particular text because I think they are important. One is this. You cannot read this passage of Scripture or the others that relate to the birth narratives without seeing how God views an unborn child. In God's eyes, the child within the womb is a person made in the image of God. And these texts do relate very powerfully to the issue of abortion and the unborn in our world. John is six months along in the womb. He's probably about a pound and a half. And yet he leaps for joy in the womb. He's already pointing to Jesus. He's already starting to fulfill that role as the forerunner of the Lord. And Jesus is barely conceived. John and Jesus are given names by God before they are conceived. God has a plan and a purpose for their life. John and Elizabeth know that this child, Jesus, will be the Savior, and they have come to understand that by divine revelation. Kent Hughes, pastor, asked the question, if Mary had gotten an abortion, what would she have aborted? A potential human being or the person of the eternal Son of God? Only one answer is possible. You know, this week in the news, I saw a sad story coming out of France where a French official was announcing that they were going to ban all commercials on the airwaves that showed happy Down syndrome children because they thought 
that it might make some women uncomfortable who had chosen to have an abortion. I don't want to see it. I don't want to know. It reminded me of the Christmas carol where Ebenezer Scrooge is confronted with the two children, ignorance and want. And he doesn't want to see them, but that spirit says, ah, but they live. And it may be that in the sight of heaven, they are of more worth than you. These are powerful statements. Unborn lives matter to God. And I say this with compassion because I know that today in any congregation there may be some who have had an abortion and there is forgiveness. There is healing that can come. But we need to be a people who speak the truth about these things. That in the sight of God, unborn lives matter. And secondly, When I look at Elizabeth's response, Elizabeth's response is remarkable. She recognizes that the greater honor has gone to Mary, but there is no jealousy or bitterness here. There's only joy and blessing and grace. I mean, she is thrilled that Mary would come. She is thrilled that the Messiah is going to be born. She knows that Mary has the greater honor just as John the Baptist will know that Jesus is greater, that he must increase and I must decrease. And these two women will form a special bond. Both would understand the joys and the fears that each of them carry. Mary's faith in particular would be costly. Many would question her purity, her faithfulness. Even Joseph would wonder at what had happened. And how would she handle that? How would she tell Joseph? She would leave that in God's hands too. And the angel would come to Joseph to tell what had happened. You know, I look at Mary and I think of all that she would witness and I think of her faith She would live to see her son suffering in crucifixion and how very hard that must have been. So what do we learn in this text about God? Again, God comes to the humble and lowly. He still does. He's not impressed by wealth or fame. He's not impressed by titles or degrees. He comes to those who are humble in heart. He comes to those who will seek him. And God does what no one else can do. God works in impossible situations. In fact, it's his specialty because then the world will know that God did it and no one else. And God comes into our lives and he steps into those challenges that we are facing and he wants us to trust him and put them in his hands. And thirdly, God brings joy, great joy to those who believe him. You know, that theme of joy is going to carry on throughout Luke's gospel. I think of it when the angels make the announcement of Jesus' birth, they say, we bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And it is. And you can think of perhaps even in your own conversion experience, the joy that you felt in your heart when you knew that you were forgiven. I remember those days feeling like, you know, my feet weren't even quite touching the ground. 
I mean, just that joy that came into my heart that was there because of the Holy Spirit's presence. The joy of forgiveness. The joy of being adopted into his family. That theme is going to ring true throughout the Gospel of Luke. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God for his coming that changes the world still today. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture again, just so beautifully told, Father, would you encourage our hearts? It is a demonstration of your great love, even for us today, that you would send your Son to be our Savior. And Father, may we, like Mary, humble ourselves before you, be open to you, whatever it is you ask of us, May we be a people who are that responsive and eager to do your will. Here I am, Lord, use me. And Father, as we grow in our relationship with you, may our understanding grow and may we think deeply about spiritual things, putting you first in our heart, putting you first in our work. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for our benediction as we close today? This comes from the book of Hebrews. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.